Hello, and welcome to the Glen Mary Unity Podcast. This project is a ministry of Glen Mary Home Missioners and specifically seeks to deepen relations between the Catholic Church and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal streams of Christianity by enhancing understanding, reducing alienation, and fostering reconciliation between these groups. In today's conversation, I interview Neil Tu. Neil is the author of the book The Gospel Life, a Catholic layperson, husband, father, business owner, and I would say an ecumenist. I'm excited to share this conversation as Neil has been finding creative ways to foster a deepening of unity between Christians through the ancient practice of Lexio Divina. If you're unfamiliar with what Lexio is, Neil will outline that in a beautiful way throughout the interview, as well as connecting it to his own story as someone who once lived with a monastic community in Europe while discerning a religious life. I believe Neil's insights here are quite profound, as many have pointed out New movements within ecumenism, which is the work of Christian unity, uh, are being established really on the basis of our experience of another person's love for Christ. As is always the case when you meet someone whose background is unfamiliar, uh, it just takes some time and some effort to translate what they might mean by a specific word or their own experiences. You see that happening uh, within fantastic theological dialogues that are happening within the church, yet This emphasis on hearing the experience of Jesus within another's life gives us a new footing, uh, a new grammar, as it were, as we journey the pilgrim way of deepening unity. With that, I'm excited to share Neil's story and his insights into Lexio Divina, ecumenism, and how anyone can take part in this practice, which will assist in their own internal deepening of unity with Christ and with other Christians as well. Well, Neil, it's great to spend the afternoon with you, and I'm excited to, to talk to you about Lexio and your own experience of Christ within it, and also how it connects to the ecumenical movement in different ways. But it's a, it's good for us just to give an introduction of who you are and how you experience Christ through this practice. So uh, you have a book out called The Gospel Life. I was wondering if you could talk about the book and its reference to living with monastic communities within Europe, and could you just share really just what was the impetus of your interest uh, to, to discern life in these monastic communities. And what was, uh, what was that experience like um, while you were there? So what drove me to, to go there in the first place? <clears throat> yeah, I get that question sometimes. And uh, the first time I got it was basically f- framed up as, um, so why do you leave Harvard College? You graduate and basically put Harvard Medical School on hold and eventually... withdraw your spot from Harvard Medical School to go explore three years in a monastery and what were you thinking? (coughs) And I want to joke about framing it that way because honestly for some period of my life afterwards, maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years after I came back, I often said to myself, what were you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) It took me a while really before I, I came to see that the groundwork, so to speak, of human learning that I did was really well worth it and that I, I would not change it. And so so if I go back now and say what what would cause me to do that, I'd have to really I have to paint briefly a, a picture of what, what I was like in college and because when I went to college I was essentially a non thoughtful mm, cr- you could say a non-thoughtful Christian, but I wasn't. I don't even think I would have identified Christianity as core to who I was. I was Catholic, but that doesn't mean a lot for a lot of people. It didn't mean a great deal for me. It wasn't insignificant, but it was not significant. It was not. It was not. You know. It was not core, and I went through a um, kind of conversion in college. I had the funniest experience where a, a young man who lived above my dorm room freshman year. <clears throat> was a really a radiant young Christian. He was not Catholic, Protestant, and um, uh, as a as a funny fast forward, he he ended up becoming a pastor. But of sort, of course, I didn't know that then. I just knew him to be this unusual species of human beings who was basically <laughs> radiant in his faith. He had this faith that was like a living faith. He spoke of Jesus, knew Jesus as a hum- as a living person. 
and uh, we would have these conversations, and he would pray sometimes for me. He invited me to the first Bible study I ever went to, and I ended up sort of going to Bible studies every every now and again freshman year. I was totally driven, like I was a pre-med student. I was completely, I was also an athlete, and I was completely time-strained, and, and I was completely f- career-focused, and and then I had this these little conversations, which were kind of outside of time, with this young man named Jung, Jung Pyo Hong. And um, anyway, that that captivated me, and I so I ended up at the end of my sophomore year, actually going on a retreat with a Christian group that he was part of. Um, it was called Harvard Radcliffe Christian Fellowship, and it's part of the InterVarsity College Ministry. And I'll just say briefly that that. That week experience of retreat away from school, away from my career mind, away from my athletic you know, demands and all that stuff, away from my home, away from all social cues, so to speak, just was riveting for me. It, it really, it, it became the core of my adult conversion. Now I go into that background to say that after that, I, um, I had this puzzle because I was like, I'm, I'm Catholic, but yet I'm basically a convert for the first time in my life. I read C.S. Lewis, and I, I was exposed to this whole world of people who take their faith really seriously, and I had to be like, what, what have I been doing for 20 years? And and I wondered whether I should convert, because I obviously I was basically sleepwalking as a Catholic, so I figured, what am I doing? And so but I couldn't quite get there, and I, ha- I, I did have a Catholic mentor who I began a relationship with me in the beginning of my junior year when I came back to school after the summer, and so, in short, I, 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 it was a real crisis of, I would say, faith and intellect, because I was trying to figure out, like, what is, what's true in Christianity? I mean, is, is Catholicism just a farce? And um, so I, I thought the only way I could figure that out was to take a minor in, in religion. And um, add a, I was an English major. I was pre-med, so I added a minor just in my spare time, which I had lots of. <laughs> so, sure. So... Um, <laughs> And all this to say is that I began like a head search. So this is key number one. Like I, I began a head search for knowledge and understanding. And I was studying at Harvard. I, I was able to take classes at Div- Harvard Divinity School as an undergrad, which is pretty cool. So made some great friends in the graduate programs. I, mean, um, I, had, a, I had a tutor, which is like the, the graduate level assistant in one of my classes. Gosh, one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. The, 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 the edits he would put on my papers were just like, this radiation of knowledge and insight and clarity and precision and he probably taught me as much about writing and thinking as anybody but that's total that's totally an aside but it was cool to take graduate level classes in, in, high, in college and so my point is I was taking all these classes but I realized like this isn't it like the brain is not the way you get to God like the intellect it's not the way it's helpful it's something it's better than nothing but it wasn't satisfying and um what helped me during my studies, my last two years when I was kind of doing all my religion coursework, <clears throat> was this a thesis that I wrote in my senior year on, on, a, on an Anglican poet named George Herbert, who was a, um, he had been a very accomplished scholar at Cambridge. He then went into a, a government uh, kind of polit- political path, was on a very you know fast track, and at some point in his 20s, Mid twenties, late twenties, he goes uh, undergoes a deep conversion, peels out of his political path, this like august, you know, magnificent path that he was on, and becomes a small town, nobody town, Bemerton, England, pastor, parish priest, this lovely little tiny village church where he lived, like in the middle of nowhere, and then he. He was, a, he was a great scholar and a writer, and he was a poet, and so he wrote these poems about his inner life, the poems basically between him, his soul, and God. And it was this mm. wonderful, wonderful poems. Like I, de- I describe his poetry as a combination between the Psalms and Shakespeare. Mm. If you took the Psalms and the Shakespeare and you put them into a blender, you'd have Herbert's poetry. Mm. And it, that hit me, because this, this was a soul, not crying out to write a paper, or to publish, or to write a book. He, he didn't even publish these things. They didn't go, come out until after his death. I'm sure some people knew about them. But um, he's a, these were the cries of a soul to God. It was his heart to heart, and that really marked me. Um, and it marked me much more profoundly 
in a than I knew. Like I knew I, I was gripped by it, but I didn't understand how seminal it was. It was seminal, and I would say that 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 was a that was those were the, that was the best. Um, that was the best uh, kind of coursework, so to speak, that I did. And it, I will just tell you that it kind of pivoted me. Like, so at one point in my seniors, probably fall, spring, probably it was probably probably winter, I wrote a paper that caused me to do some research on Thomas Merton, and who was a Cistercian monk who went to Columbia University, kind of like a George Herbert type guy who had it all was going to go wherever he wanted was a writer was writing for new yorker and you know in in his 20s he's got these great writing posts for the new new york sort of the new york publications and then that guy decides to become a cistercian monk and he writes like herbert like you know the dialogue of his soul and god and he wrote this book called the seven story mountain which i picked up and i also read um one of his journals called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. And here I was in front of a modern day Herbert, basically. Herbert was in the 1700s, sorry, 1600, 1650, 60, something like that. <clears throat> and um, so about, a, I guess that's about 100 years after, I forget where Shakespeare was, but I think it's about 40, 50 years after Shakespeare. And, um, but Merton was modern day. And he spoke in the voice of an American, and he spoke with the poet's ear and the the, the literary phrase turns a phrase, and, and it was a, the dialogue of a soul of great intellect and and God, and and I and and he's talking about entering a monastery, and he talks about the radiant view of life, the liturgical view of life that a monk has, and I was just like, I was, mm-hmm. it was another like absolute mind blowing moment. I'll never forget. The time that I was in the stacks of, of Harvard Divinity School, when I found his first book, and I just started reading it standing up there, and I just was captivated. And so, all this to say that Herbert, then, or sorry, Merton, Thomas Merton, helped me discover monasticism. That was really my first discovery of it. Hmm. And I felt myself saying, This, so you remember, I was like dissatisfied with the head, head path, the path of the intellect, and I thought, This guy gets it. And and I what I discovered was like there's like this, you know, that young man who I knew as a freshman, he had that heart level knowledge. And here was Merton with all of this what you might call Harvard level intellect, but this deep head sorry, this this deep heart knowledge. And mm-hmm. so I was like, Well, maybe the monastery is where I can find this because that's what I was looking for. I wanted to deepen that. And I didn't know um <coughs> how to do that. I had no clue. I, I did I did go to his monastery my s- mm-hmm. for my spring break senior year. I was a very rowdy student, so Absolutely. I went to the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds totally like <laughs> spring break. <laughs> yeah, you'll never live that one down. But And it was kind of dis- disconnect. I, I'll just say it was disconnect, and I'll leave it there. Mm. And, but I, but there was something beautiful about it, and I knew, and I, I just, you know, I, I was still searching. And so what, what happened was I got this sort of miracle intervention because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had sort of framed up in my mind. I wanted to, I was a, you know, I was pre-med and I had all my applications ready and stuff, but I decided I wanted to take a year off to figure out the question of God, right? You can do that in a year. Yeah, right. right. A a gap year, I think is what they call it. (laughs) (laughs) The God year. So (laughs) the most foolish concept that you could figure, like that I could figure that out in in a year, but that was what I thought, and then I would do that, and then go to, go to medical school. But I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and then all of a sudden, I got this um, uh, grant that I received as from Harvard, like athletics department, as the graduating senior scholar athlete, which was I didn't even know the thing existed, and I won this b- pile of money, and I thought, well, okay, well now I have some money that I can play with, and so I took that money and I went to a school in. France that had been recommended by my Catholic mentor. You remember I had this Catholic mm-hmm. mentor. I ended up having a Catholic mentor and a Protestant mentor throughout my end of my collegiate career who kind of guided me. And the, f- the French Catholic mentor, she was a woman from France. She recommended the school. So I went to this school in France. And the point, the end of the story is when I was on my Christmas break on that first year in France, 
some 22 years and a half years old. And I decided I wanted to find, like, Merton talked about the Carthusians with great glowing admiration. And I'm like, that's where I need to go. <laughs> so, so I found basically this uh, order that was founded kind of in the Carthusian tradition under the, you might call it the patronage of St. Bruno, who's the founder of the Carthusians. They're basically, a, they, don't, they don't like to say this, and it's not proper to say this because they're not technically Carthusians, but they, I mean, between you and me, they basically, you would, har you would have a hard way of telling the difference, the, the, but they were founded in 1950, and, um, and they're not Carthusians, but they bear the marks of St. Bruno's wisdom and his, they, they say he's their spirit, he is their spiritual father. The point is I, f I, I wanted to find this place that Merton identified as the height of monasticism, which were the Carthusians. So I went on a retreat. Here's, the, where the, here's how it all kind of plays out. I, on my Christmas break, I went down to this, you know, I got a, the approval to come stay in one of their hermitages. Mm. And uh, I, sp I spent a week there, and I will just say, in short, I was completely blown away. Um, the abbot of the monastery in France kind of sensed that I was maybe peculiar or whatever. In, in I don't know, but so he's like, you need to meet our our, found, our abbot, who was in Italy. So, <laughs> so they plopped me on a train. I, I train over, this is still that same first year, to Italy. Um, Perugia is this closest city, and I meet this guy, the, the founder, who's Brother Patrick, who's the person who made, had a huge impact. And in short, I, rec I discovered in him essentially the modern-day George Herbert, mm. the modern-day Thomas Merton, a guy who was a doctor before he became a monk. He was eminently wise he was eminently capable he was charismatic he was everything that you would want a ceo of a business to be but he was profound and he had left it all to be a monk and he was a radiant personality that and the community itself the, the liturgy this was a this is a catholic monastery deeply influenced by east by orthodox liturgy and practice uh easily a 50 percent kind of merger and Orthodox being, you know, Eastern uh, traditions of the Church uh, coming through historically. Correct. Like uh, like pre pre 1054 when there was mm -hmm. a big schism between the Catholics and the right. Orth Greek Orthodox. Um, the, it's a large. It, it it entails what we would call Eastern Christianity, and their liturgy is remarkable. It's it, it to this day it's remarkable and. This monastery was deeply influenced by Orthodox liturgy and, and practice, and it was between the liturgy and Brother Patrick and then Brother Dona, the, the French prior who sent me over to Italy, I just, I, I said to myself, in, you know, in germ, because it took me a little while to make it a, pra a, a decision, but I said, this is what I want to study. I want to make this my graduate school. Like, mm. this is the learning that I've been looking for mm. since those months after my conversion when I was trying to figure out, like, what is going on here? What is what's happening with the Catholic Protestant head heart? Like, mm -hmm. how do I find the synthesis? Mm -hmm. And, and sh I felt that monasticism, in particular, at this m order of monks called the Brothers of Bethlehem, that that was where I could find the synthesis. Mm. And then that turned into what became a three-year period of living and study. Wonderful. <coughs> so in my mind, uh, what's really like triggering for me is uh, somebody who's, who's meant a lot to me, whose writings have meant a lot to me. Merton, obviously, The Seven Story Mountain's fantastic. Um, but another writer, um, you know, the, the century before then, uh, is uh, John Henry Newman. Mm -hmm. And within his uh, grammar of ascent, he's actually describing the exact thing that you just described that there are ways in which we have kind of a notional ascent, which is just the world of ideas. But then there's something that's more captivating that actually moves people forward, and that's when they have a real ascent to something, which is something that you can see, that you can apprehend, that affects you in a particular way. And at the end of his grammar, basically the whole book is, is him making a defense for uh, the Christian faith within a hyper-rationalistic world. And at the very end, the very last page, he says, 
um, after he's gone through painting the image of uh, the early martyrs as being the reason anybody should maybe believe in Christianity or that might be legitimate. He says, I've been trying to tie the importance of the intellect to the imagination. And the imagination is, is this world in which the intellect and the real or the real apprehension, these images that we experience within our lives, kind of really grasp us and pull us forward. So for, for many of us, we haven't experienced what a, a monastic community looks like. Certainly, very few of us have experienced what the liturgy is that you've described or what those communities even look like within the area of Europe. So could you just, thinking about the imagination, thinking about how we can kind of draw this together from your own experience, paint a picture and just go back in your own mind as to what did it look like, the hermitage within the hills there in the mountains? What did it, it look like within the liturgy? What was so captivating and beautiful about that? And as much as you can share from your own memory, would you, uh, would you tap into that for us? Okay, so, so shut your eyes, so to speak, and kind of grasp this picture. So you're up h- high in the mountains in the south of France, High, like as in it would take you 20 minutes to get up a mountain road to get to where where this place is, and you're nestled in a kind of a kind of an upper plateau. There isn't a. I don't even recall. I don't know how they got electricity up there, but you're f- for all intents and purposes you're up in the Alps, so to speak, and um, and there's nothing there. There's just sky, there's stars, there's mountaintops, there's snow, there's trees. And then there are these stone buildings. There's a one stone building in the center, that's the chapel. Then there's about 12, let's say there are 12 little cells around it. And um, those are the little places where each monk lives. They call them the little hermit, uh, kind of hermitages, cells connected to the, by a pathway. And then you're in a little rich, you're in a little cell further out from there, which is where the guest cells are. And so let's say that now it's 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 literally they call it five a.m. more more or less, where the b- bells ring and you go trudging off in the snow down this little path into this little kind of cloister, and you follow these little l- dimly lit pathway, and you pull up pull open this wooden creaking heavy door that goes and there's a little sign there that says blessed are the poor of heart for they they see God and you walk in there and there's tile clay tile on the floor there's not a sound there's not a movement there's little light there's candles there are icons and then uh, as as you settle in you get your little books your little prayer books and then you hear this kind of I mean you hear in unison these voices um, raised up to heaven. They praising the Trinity, glory to the Holy Trinity is the chant that begins the prayer. And you're hearing a level of the human heart that it is not meant to please. It is not trying to be attractive. It is not meant to be trendy. It is not meant to be, you're not, they're not selling anything. They are talking in a language of faith and a language of deep tradition, they're speaking, they're dialoguing with God. And, and then this, this, this dialogue runs for, in the morning, basically call it an hour and 45 minutes to two hours. It's interspersed with silence. And you feel like you've just stepped in between a dialogue between human beings and God, and you never were even so sure that God even existed. And now you feel like you're, you're in between a soul and God's own heart. And you are, um, you're just stunned. You're stunned that this place exists. And you're alone. There's not another retreatant there. It's, it's cold of winter. It's January 1994. You're, you're a kind of a kid who's trying to figure things out. And 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 this washes over you like a like a waterfall, yeah. and and it happens twice a day, in the morning and at night. And they pray actually seven times a day, but five times a day they pray alone in their rooms, in their little air, in their little cells, and then that's the bit of the experience. I'll tell you the one more thing that was all this is happening. By the way, you're in a guest loft up top, uh, because that guest sits separately from the monks. I will just tell you, and I, I write about this in the book. At one point, I was so 
I don't know, captivated and puzzled and in, inquiring. And I'll just fast forward. The, the prior says to me at one point, you know, would it help you understand better what we're about if you came and sat down among the brothers? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so, so I did. And I'm telling you that when I went to my first office down sitting right behind them, so I'm right in that choir, it'd be like sitting in the ventricle of the heart. Like, you know, if you could imagine, if you could put yourself in the ventricle of one of the, one of the ventricles, the right or the left, and where the, call it the whichever ventricle where the sinoatrial node does and it pulses and it starts the whole thing, you'd be sitting in the very pulsing heart of the human person. It's like that. And, and I remember... I, I was when I walked out after that first office when I was down with the monks, and I walked out in the middle of the of the monastic courtyard, and there's this great big cross in the middle. It's covered with snow. <clears throat> I just I remember, and and it's all surrounded by mountains on all sides. I remember looking up, just just being just staggered, just flabbergasted, and I just like 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 the stories when. You know, I don't know who is it, Ezekiel, or probably Ezekiel, when he goes to the river Kabar and he sees the glory of God, mm. and he's like, he falls on his face, and yes. he's like, "I'm so small." Yes. It was like that. Oh, that's beautiful. So you mis- mentioned the uh, the monks devote themselves to so many hours of prayer throughout the day, and throughout your book, you highlight specifically uh, the practice of lexio divina or divine reading or sacred reading and how much that impacted you in your time there and in uh, your time going forward. Could you just share a little bit about what that looks like to pray that, uh, your first experience of it uh, within those monastic communities? And then following that, we can just you know maybe give more of an overview for anybody who might be unfamiliar. What What is the practice of Lexio Divina? So this question of what is Lexio Divina, I get asked that a lot too. And... Um, you know, the question is something like, where does it come from? And the way I like to answer that question first is in truth, in my perception of truth, where it comes from. And what I would say is that it, where it comes from, it comes from, in my view, the shores of Galilee. Like Lexio Divina is this place where the one who walked those shores of Galilee, where you walk along those shores, the one who speaks, he speaks, you hear his voice. The Lexio originates in the understanding that Jesus speaks. And he, he is a living person, and he, um, his voice is present to us, is available to us through, through the scriptures. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a marvelous thing. It's, it's not commonly understood. The monks are the guardians of this tradition. And um, it's, uh, it's, you know, when I, my experience of it was to, to, was to encounter a group of people who I saw to be living kind of traditionally, con- consistently in his presence, and they taught me essentially the lens through which to understand scripture and how we can encounter. Um, um, so um, people like to associate uh, schools of thought with those who have tagged them, like whose idea was that? And so to trace the so-called the human history, the intellectual history of, of, of Lexio Divina, um, imagine that you could skip a stone across 2,000, centru- 2000 years, and if you skipped it and you started skipping it in 300, that's kind of the way I would trace the intellectual history of Lexio Divina. To my knowledge, the first person who kind of framed up this approach to praying scripture was Origen. And or, uniquely enough, his name, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Origen with an E-N. Or, uh, he's one of the early Christian fathers. He kind of has a checkered past, but he had this insight where he, uh, as I understand it, was the first person to kind of speak of Scripture as a sacrament, as a place to encounter Christ, which I can, assure, I can provide assurance that that is, I believe that as well. Um, he developed these early thoughts around Lexio Divina. Through Origen, it went to Ambrose, Ambrose was like the mentor of St. Augustine. We're now in the f- late 300s, I believe, or 400s. 
from Augustine, it, it finds its way more or less to St. Benedict, who was the kind of the great leader of Western monasticism in the 600s. And he kind of codified it for his monks, um, the, all the Benedictine monks. You have the Benedictine rule of life. From Benedict, it, it had its next best expression in Guigo, who was a Carthusian, Guigo II in the 1200s. And he wrote this incredible work called The Ladder of Monks, which is where many people like to cause, like look to the origins of Alexio, but it was just kind of the, the magisterial treatment of it. What's super fascinating, what not everybody knows about, is that um, you know John of the Cross is a very famous Catholic saint, and he taught. He was in the 1500s, and he, I think 1580s, and he taught it to his monks, which is helpful to know. Not everybody is aware of that. And then um, even in the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin was was in spoke of it and uh, and then there was a Puritan like Baxter is his name, last name who who had a kind of a modified approach so you already saw how it spanned the Protestant Catholic divide and then lastly um, in the 20 well in the 1900s you had of course the Vatican Council Vatican II and there was a document called Dei Verbum which uh, for a period of time Catholic and Protestant scriptural scholarship went through this whole I can't even remember what it's called. I studied it in college, but like, you know, quest for the historical Jesus and things like this, where they were trying to like completely bring a highly academic approach to scripture. We, then there was kind of lost this this more faith-driven approach that uh, is Lexio Divina, but in the 1960s, so Dei Verbum in the Catholic Church kind of said, hey, let's not forget Lexio Divina. They kind of put a spotlight on it, and from there, there was a bit of rediscovery, mm -hmm. so to speak. But that's kind of the intellectual path. But I don't really even like that because, you know, you don't need to go there. Mm -hmm. it, the, the, the power of Lexio is the voice of Jesus, and it is his voice. And it's not just the voice of Jesus in the Gospels, which it certainly is, but once you really encounter Christ at the heart of the Scriptures, you, can, you, you will and can encounter him through all of the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And Lexio is listening I would say not just the voice of Christ, but the voice of the Trinity in the scriptures. Because the voice of the Trinity speaks, that is to say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not one voice, but the voice of the Trinitarian God is evident in the scriptures, and it is heard and grasped and interiorized by mm -hmm. someone who practices Lexio Divina. Yeah, and so in your book, you have a great way of kind of spelling out Lexio within uh, five steps. I know other people might use different steps within this, and there's maybe some different approaches. But could you just walk us through those and and how maybe anybody could be engaging within this practice in their home or within groups? Yeah, so um, I'm going to say one... I, I'm going to bet that I'm going to say something that a lot of people have never heard before here, which is to say what you will have heard is that there are four steps to Lexio Divina. Uh, they're, they're commonly understood to be lexio or reading, meditatio or meditation or reflection, oratio or, or prayer, and contemplatio is a fourth or contemplation. The monastery where I was, and I don't know if they developed this or who developed it. I've never read it anywhere. I've never seen it in writing. Any, they have a first step called axio. I've seen this step kind of loosely described, but in the monastery where I was, they, they really put an emphasis on it, as they should, which is to say, axio is the step of just preparing yourself to enter into God's presence. And I say that, I like, uh, when I've taught this in groups, what I like to say is, okay, so let's imagine you and I are sitting here right now, and let's imagine, uh, listener, that you're, you are where you are, which is seated or in your car or in your office or in your you know, favorite room at home, and let's say Jesus walks in. I mean, let's just say. And uh, he walks in, what would you do? Would you be like, hey, what's up? Hey, bruh, what's up, bruh? Like, as my kids, I hate, I hate that. My kids, like, they call me bruh, <laughs> you know, and I, I allow it for, for better or worse. But would you casually address him as though that which is utterly normal and mundane to your life is happening? Or would you recognize that this is one in whose presence I stand, who is greater than any president, greater than any sports star, greater than any king, 
greater than any emperor, greater than any writer, which is it? The answer is it's the latter. And if such a person walked into your room, you would hop up. You would, if you knew he was coming, you would get dressed and you would clean the house and you would put away your stuff and you would be ready if, he was, if you knew he was coming. So axio is the reality that we know Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are about to speak. And if they are about to speak, a couple things happen. Well, first of all, I'm going to spend my priority time, like first thing in the morning, listening. I'm not going to do it at the end of the day when I'm exhausted. And I'm going to, I'm going to get ready. I'm going to, if it were work, I would shower, I would shave, and I would put on a suit in the old days or just business casual for now. But the point is, we would prepare to be in the presence of someone whose word and wisdom, care and love and concern was magnificent and whose power was great. We would prepare ourselves. Mm -hmm. Axio is the first step. So then Lexio is the next step. I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but uh, maybe I'll just sketch it and we can come back. Mm -hmm. But Lexio is just the simple step of reading it. <clears throat> You've gotten your mind ready. In Lexio, you, you just read it. You read it with attention. And, um, you know, typically I would say you should read it twice, read it once, pause, read it again, because you have to learn to let words sink into your awareness at a deeper level. I, I love to say to people, if you know another language, get a Bible in that language and read it in that language first or second, because the other language will force you to read more carefully. Um, I didn't do this in the beginning, but I've kind of made myself a task of studying as many of the other languages as I can. So I'll read it in English, then Latin, then Greek, as a way of letting it sink. And each language is like a, it's a slowing down of the mind, and it's a, it's it's just amazing how that works. So there's let the let the text impress itself upon you in that step. And then briefly, as a quick step, I'm, I'm going kind of too fast here, but you want to go through an exercise of restating in your own words what just happened as a way of, it's a way of bringing the mind present to the reality. It's, it, it's an easy step to miss. I've never heard anybody articulate that. That, again, comes from the monastery where I was. I think they have a real gift for it. So that's, that's part of Lexio. The third step is meditatio. <coughs> And, and just as an aside, if people are curious about what I'm doing and I'm going too fast, I have a podcast where I lay this out much more slowly, and I will we'll reference that at the later. later. But meditatio is where you, you ask yourself the question, like it's now we've, we've, we've noticed what's going on just objectively with no commentary in our brain. We're just noticing. We, we made ourselves essentially a spectator in the scene. In meditatio, you start to ask yourself questions like, what, what is this? Wh wh why is Jesus saying this? Wh what does he mean by this word? Why is he so abrupt? Why is he evasive? Why is he asking a question when someone asks him a question? You start to ask things. You start to dig um, the way a reporter would dig around a story. And then you, this phase of the, of the process should really be driven by the question, what is the heart of this passage for me? What's the heart of it? Because you can't know everything about Scripture, any passage, but you, especially if you're a busy layperson, you want to get to the heart of it. So you ask yourself the question, what is the heart of this? Then that'll prompt you, that'll zero you in on one passage. And as you ask, as you, as you isolate, say, that one part of the passage and maybe one verse that you pull out, then you can say to yourself, well, is there anything else in Scripture that, that echoes this, that illuminates this? And this is a really important question in meditatio because you're, you're now kind of allowing Scripture, the broader Scripture, to sort of speak and layer over and become one unified voice. It's a really important question. So um, you'll, you'll find that this process will kind of take you to, the, to a kind of a crystallized thought. And so the fourth step is, is where you, you take the thought, the clarity, the insight, the light, that comes from scripture and you respond to it in prayer. And so, for example, this morning in the group that I was with, we were doing uh, Lexio on Mark chapter one, verse 14 to 20. 
and the verse we the heart of it the verse we came up with that we felt to be the heart was the kingdom the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is near repent and believe in the gospel and so in in oratio you isolate sort of one verse that expresses the heart that expresses the insight and then you raise a prayer out of it you you respond in your heart at the level of your heart to the to the level of god's heart that he just communicated to you and an example from this morning would be jesus you are the christ you are the son of the living god you say <clears throat> that the kingdom of god is near you say it i i believe it help my unbelief so i'm listening to him and i'm responding i believe but I, um, I also doubt. Help my unbelief, which is I'm just echoing the prayer of that one, the father of the sick child who is asking Jesus to heal his child, but he doubts. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. So that's a way of, you see how that's just a very short prayer that's hinged upon my meditation. And then the last step is, the fifth step is contemplatio or contemplation. And this is what I like to say is, this is off of our radar. This is, this is out, as Obama used to say, it's above my pay grade, <laughs> you know, to bring the politics into this. But, you know, in other words, we don't do contemplation. Contemplation happens when God moves. And what I also like to say is, hey, God moves. You don't have to be a monk. God moves. He speaks. And he can move in your own heart. And uh, what I will tell you is when God does move in that way, that unique way you will be moved to silence mm. and you will be moved to wonder mm. it takes work it's like any it, if you're a scientist it's like all the research and the effort and the labor and the funding and the politics that goes beyond a breakthrough discovery and then you have that breakthrough light and then you do an experiment mm. that proves it so that's the height of a long process contemplation is the end of a long process mm. you must do the process but the the light comes. Mm -hmm. And when it comes, you have to give space in your day for it to come. If you're mm -hmm. so busy, you never slow down, <clears throat> you'll never be a contemplative. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to stop. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're, when to create space in your life for God to move, <clears throat> I will say the last thing on this is that in the early days, you know, for people who are like, oh, you know, you were a monk from the age of 20, life's easy for you. Well, no, not, not quite. I mean, when I came back, it was horribly difficult, and it took me years before I realized, yes, I can, I can practice Lexio Divina as a busy layperson, dad, father for. And the first place I ever really practiced contemplation, I didn't. It happened. Like, in other words, I would wake up at like 3 or 4 a.m., which everybody does by the time you're 40 or 50. Like, everyone's got all their anxieties. You wake up in the middle of the night, and what I discovered was that's the time. Hmm. Get up, get out of bed, go downstairs, take your rosary, your prayer beads, and let that be the quiet time. Mm -hmm. And just sit there. Take 10 minutes. And once that started to become a pattern for me, like if I woke up, I would say, okay, the, the bells are ringing. I'm going to go do my quiet contemplation prayer. I find that there are little moments now mm -hmm. all over the place. And mm -hmm. there's, there's room in everyone's life to be still. Mm -hmm. <coughs> to be silent when God moves and speaks. Mm -hmm. And so you have these, these steps of, of actio, of, of being uh, attentive, mm -hmm. recognizing that Jesus is there. It's, it sounds very reminiscent of uh, the beginning steps of an examination of conscience. Mm -hmm. you know? And then you go to this place of lexio, of reading the scriptures, sitting with them multiple times, and as you said, maybe within different languages, if that's easy for somebody. And then you go through this place in which you're uh, reading through these and, and, and meditating on them and, and seeing what words are sticking out, what phrases are sticking out to you, and going back to those, paying attention to those. Then you go to this place of oratio where you're, this, this fourth step where you're bringing these words up in prayer to God. And then from there you give it to the Lord, and it's this place of contemplation that carries you through the day where you're always seeing that, this isn't just simply words on a page, but is the embodiment of the Word of God. Mm. The Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. Well, if we begin to apply this not just simply to the idea of words on a page, like in a simple intellect, but the Spirit of God moving through those words, engaging us and touching our own hearts, that's, that's Christ, the Spirit, and the Trinity speaking to us within that, 
I don't want to give a, a, a false attribution of a, of a quote here, but I believe it's Augustine who talks about that our prayer is us uh, speaking, whether it's in our minds, our own words to God, and him responding to us through his word in this scripture as well. And so it's a, it's a beautiful relationship that we can have with God that can be so close in this space. And why I'm so interested in, in, in Lexio, specifically within the world of ecumenism, is that you're seeing these these new movements. And you should define ecumenism. Maybe you don't, but for my audience, you need to define that. Sure, sure. Well, for, for these movements of ecumenism, so these efforts towards Christian unity. Right, across denominations. Yeah, absolutely. For so long, it's been in this area of the intellect. You know, are we just saying something slightly different, but we believe the same thing? Mm-hmm. And we found a lot of convergences within that. That's That's cleared the way for some wonderful new spaces of unity. And then there's ways in which we uh, partner together, serving the poor, uh, spending joint time and uh, learning from one another, experiencing one another. Well, there's this this new movement uh, manifest, which I've had within my podcast, um, within what's understood as the Global Christian Forum. So the, the forum grew out of the World Council of Churches is recognizing that you know, if this is the World Council of Churches, but we don't have a representation of many different denominations taking part in this, and, and what can we do to kind of broaden the table a little bit more? And so the forum focuses on deepening our Christian unity through sharing our experiences of Jesus, and whether that's um, testimonies like you shared just at the beginning of this interview of uh, kind of this internal conversion, uh, first initial conversion. Um, some people call this uh, these testimonies or faith-sharing experiences, and, and a lot of people have been in- engaging in this, and it's really beautiful. But uh, for ongoing relationships between Christians and between different churches and different denominations, there's always this actor at play, and that actor is our experience of Jesus and Jesus Christ and his spirit within it. And we begin to trust people more, not because we recognize that we are aligned specifically in our words or in our theology, but in our love for Jesus Christ. And that puts us on a new foundation in which we can hear each other in a new way. And with the practice of Lexio, especially if you do it in a group format like you do with your group now, we're opening up ourselves to hear about the experience of Jesus in another person. Mm. And that creates a new bond of unity because the Holy Spirit is enacting through that, through the scriptures and through sharing this testimony throughout. And now I've, I've just spoken a lot on this, and I, I don't know what more you would like to add, but I just see such wonderful opportunities for the practice of Lexio being the seedbed, the scriptures being the seedbed, ironically enough, for our deepening unity. And so I was wondering if you could talk about your own experience with that, maybe even talk about your own group, which is very ecumenical, and what you've experienced about the opportunities for deepening unity through the practice of Lexio. So, yeah, <clears throat> love that question. <clears throat> um, I will, I'll just start by saying that in the group that we're well, refer- referencing this morning, that met this morning, we have, a, we have Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, and a seeker. Uh, he's going to be mad at me, but I'm not telling you who it is, but he knows who it is. So, um, and, uh, so I love that. And I, I have, you remember, my whole path started with the puzzle. Like, how could I have been converted in a Protestant group, if I'm Catholic, and does that mean I should discard Catholicism because it didn't work? Or did I rather come to discover what was beautiful about both traditions and how did, how did, because in truth, my Catholic upbringing was not for naught. It was, it was a foundation. It just wasn't quite, it didn't quite light me on fire fully in the same way that that conversion experience did. Um, and so, so I've always been it. I've always been wrestling with that, and, I, and ever since, ever since my return from the monastery, I've always wanted to find how can, how can that experience of God that I and of Jesus that I had discovered, how can that be open, across the denominations? So, what I would say, I would say two things. Uh, so I do think lexio is is a key. I don't have a theory on it. I have a practice. I've tried it. It works. I've I have, I have had Lexio conversations with Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, and non-believers, non-Christians. Uh, in our group this morning, you wouldn't know who's who. You would have no idea. And we don't, it does, it's totally irrelevant. Denominations are completely irrelevant. 
And if you notice in the Gospels, if you pay attention, Jesus denominations was nearly irre- I would I don't know if I can say irrelevant, but it was nearly irrelevant to Jesus. When Jesus spoke to a Samaritan, it was as though he was speaking to a Jewish person. When he spoke to a pagan, uh, he he actually did have a slightly different way of engaging non non theists, but he certainly engaged them, and um, he certainly sought to reach them. And this is, so I find that the encounter with Jesus is encounter with a figure who does transcend religious denominations, definitely all Christian denominations. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble with the way I phrase that. You know, I get in trouble often. Um, But it is, I find Lexio Divina, I'll, I'll just, again, I don't have a theory. I just have a practice. This morning I had, you know, group guys, and you wouldn't have known who's, who's Catholic, who's Orthodox, who's, when, when you have the soul talking to Jesus or the soul listening to Jesus, those, those uh, categories fall away. They're, they're non-essential. Um, I'm not saying they're non-consequential, but I'm just saying they, Jesus transcends them. Um, and uh, so I find Alexio somehow gets around some of the barriers. I will say, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is, I'm, I, I go to a men's, a, a non-Catholic men's group on Saturday mornings, we sit around a fire, we talk, basically talk about, actually I, now that I think of it, I, w- I would call that a Protestant lexio. We, we talk about scriptures. I mean, not only, we talk about life and scripture and how Jesus is impacting our lives. It's really, a, it's, now that I think of it, it's basically a Protestant, and I hope I'm not offending anyone here, but it's a Protestant meditatio. We don't read from the scriptures. We're talking about what we discovered. And it, often the question will be something like, what's top of mind or what moved you? And then people share out of their experience of Christ. And they typically share through the scriptural lens. And so now, and I, and I have shared amply with that group about my experience of Lexio in the monastery. And I, I speak as though I'm, there's no boundary there either. There's no, there's no, there's no division. We are brothers. And then the third thing I would say, and, I, and so again, I find that the word, encountering other Christians at the level of the word is the best way because that's universal. We all, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants can all engage there. And then lastly, I had a book when I first came out with my book and I, we did a launch. Um, the first public launch of it was June 29th, that last year, 2021. And I had it, and you were there, you nice guy, you. And uh, I had it in a restaurant. I will say it was some of the best Italian food I've ever had in my life. So why <laughs> on earth would I not be there? But I, of course, wanted to support you. <laughs> yes, and that was at Amelia Enoteca in Loveland. And those guys did the most fabulous job with that dinner. It was off the charts. I Amen. couldn't have even imagined. I wouldn't have even hoped for it to be that good. So shout out to Amelia Enoteca. Or Enoteca Amelia. I always forget which is which. But anyway, so the point is we had it in a restaurant. So as not to be like in a Catholic place or a Protestant, and it was easily, you know, like half and half. Well, there was there was a, there was a Mormon family couple there. There was Catholics, Protestants. Was it? I wished I was wishing we had some Jewish friends there, but I don't think there were that night. But the point is, the message of the monks and the message of Alexio Divina again transcends those categories, and uh, so. I do believe it's it's a wonderful path to go on. And then lastly, I will say on, on February 16th, I'm going to have another event down at this Cincinnati Catholic Cathedral, Basilica Cathedral, St. Peter's. And, well, what am I saying? You're the one hosting that. And um, so that we are hoping, like, yes, it's in the Catholic Basilica, St. Peter's, um, but it's, it's designed to, it's extended free of charge to every Christian or non-Christian looking at how Lexio is a place where the, the Christian soul can, I, can listen mm-hmm. to the words of Jesus and, and encounter the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. What I liked about this vision, and um, I'm going to kind of put my own language on this that uh, might be helpful, might not be, but this idea of... Um, when we meet together and we read the scriptures together, we encounter Christ. And I like the way that you say it transcends our denominations or transcends these differences. Um, 
because I, I can kind of, at least my experience of it, can envision two things happening at the same time. Um, for anybody who grows up within a particular denominational tradition or whatever, you can never transcend your own experience. Right. You're always going to speak through a particular lens. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> we recognize these, um, especially when we identify them as expressions of the Church of Christ or the Kingdom of God within them. These are really good things. Mm-hmm. The Lord is working through these. And uh, so when we speak, we are, we are bringing that to this space. So it's not, it's not devoid of that, but it's not the emphasis. It's not the purpose. But then when we listen to Christ speaking, it makes sense that he would transcend that because Untatus mm-hmm. uh, Gratio, which is the, uh, the creon ecumenism from Vatican II, emphasizes that there can be no ecumenism worthy of the name without a change of heart. And so the purpose of ecumenism is internal conversion. Mm. Not that everybody becomes this or everybody becomes that, but that we're always made new and made more like Christ. And so, of course, Christ must transcend us and our experience of him must always transcend so that we might actually be internally converted. And that's not just simply us, but our traditions as well as we as we represent those traditions. Mm. And so there's this interesting interplay of God always pulling us out of ourselves more and more. And in that process of being pulled, you know, this (coughs) act of sanctification, this, this beatitude in a way, we're becoming more like one another because we're becoming more like Christ if we're allowing ourselves to be converted Mm. to him. And so we have to allow Christ to always transcend us because we're always needing to grow. That's what the salvific life is. And so I really love the image that you're painting here of Lexio as, as bringing us beyond these spaces, um, making us more and more into his likeness. Yeah, so he transcends us, but he also addresses us. Yeah. That's totally. what you're saying. You're mm-hmm. saying he transcends our categories, but he speaks to us within our categories. He respects the categories, and mm-hmm. he understands the categories. Mm-hmm. He understood how to speak to that Canaanite woman who you know wanted to, when the whole breadcrumb story, which is so puzzling, right, that right. He, he, was, he was doing something on purpose there. When he engages the Samaritans, mm-hmm. he, he knows what's going on. He goes into Samaria on purpose to show his disciples that, look, guys, this is, these guys are not outside the family. Mm-hmm. He made clear that that Canaanite pagan woman was part, was a child, of, was a daughter of Israel. That's what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the story of the, um, the good Samaritan, you know, people probably seldom understand that the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews, basically. And Jesus was painting him in that story as the hero, mm-hmm. more so a hero than the Levite or the, I forget what the second character was, but you remember? Like Levites, ha- was oh, a Pharisee. The scribes and Pharisees. Scri- yeah. yeah, so anyway, so mm-hmm. I just see Jesus as very sensitive to categories, but transcending them. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah because uh, it shows that Christ works in history. And there's a way in which we um, aren't absent him within our peculiar experience. Right. And it's such a beautiful uh, way, not just simply to think about that, but to, to consider your own experience that you just described through <coughs> your uh, testimony now, that y- the you were fostered in the Catholic faith. Your heart was enlivened through this evangelical experience uh, that you, this, this other evangelical person that you met within Catholic, or I'm sorry, within, a, a co- within the college years, and then you experienced uh, Christ in another way, peculiar perhaps and reminiscent of an Orthodox experience within the, the mm. community in France and Italy. And there's a way in which um, Christ recognizes these differences, maybe, mm. as we would call them differences, but... Um, is bringing us into more fuller union with him and with one another Mm. when we begin to recognize Jesus as actually being present within those communities. Mm. And uh, so how do we, how do we manifest that more and more? And so that's why I'm excited about your work with Alexio, your desire for that popping up in other regions. You know, that doesn't have to be something that's just uh, a one-on-one thing. It's, it's great if people want to do that within their own personal Mm -hmm. devotions for sure and totally do that. But doing that within uh, various cities, and you're, you're doing that now within the Cincinnati area, 
as we close now, I was, I was hoping you could uh, just take a moment to talk about your book, The Gospel Life, your, your podcast. Where can people purchase the book? Where can people sign up for the podcast? And I had to say what's really fascinating about the book itself, it just has the most beautiful images within it. Mm-hmm. So it captures people, not specifically on the intellect, as you said before, but really moves them on the area of their imagination, which is really what brings us into deeper conversion. So uh, share a little bit about where people can pick this up and, and log into your podcast. So I have to say, <clears throat> you've triggered my thoughts into one of my favorite phrases <clears throat> of w- when you mentioned the <clears throat> the power of the images. There's this phrase that Aristotle said. He, he said, the soul never thinks without an image. And that really speaks to the power of the way we encounter truth, reality, transcendence through the through images. And I just love that phrase. And it, it, you made me think of it. But um, the... Um <clears throat> So the book, you can find out more about the book. The easiest, there are a couple of sites, but the easy one to remember is at Neil, my author page, which is neil2.com. That's N-E-A-L-T-E-W.com, neil2.com. If you forget that, the other one that goes to the same place is thegospellife.net. And I should say I'll have these in the show notes as well for people to check out too. Okay. And so you can find there what I would tag people to... So it, that'll tell, it'll walk you through, that'll tell you about the story, the backstory, and but you might enjoy finding, you'll find my podcast on that site under resources, so you hit resources and then you hit podcast, you'll see all my podcasts. The, the, the podcast that I mentioned is number five, it's where I say what is Lexio Divina, and it's about a 30 minute little run through of what we talked about earlier, all the four, five steps, some some tips and ideas of how to, how to jump start. Um, I want to um, flag two things. Um, one is maybe like a, I think when we talked about this before, I think one, one important topic is like, what if somebody wants to get started? What would I recommend? I mean, that's, I think that's helpful. Right. So I'm going to come back to that. But then I also <clears throat> want to say that if you find the story, the backstory intriguing, my first podcast <clears throat> is where I actually tell the story of how it was that I, came on this monastic journey, how the heck did I get their permission, <clears throat> which is by no means easy to get them to give me that totally unfettered access. That was a thing of grace and you know mystery how that happened. And then why did it take me 19 years to publish it? Because I just published it a couple months ago. So that's in podcast number one, just for those who are interested. So the last question would be, what if somebody wants to get started? I want to do Lexio. What do I do? I want to get in a group, or I want to lead a group, or I would say, I, I would say maybe four things. The first is, again, not to, you know, I'm not selling it anyway, but like podcast number five, episode number five, traces those five steps and how you might get started. My advice would be this: before you talk about leading a group or anything, no matter how old you are in the Christian life, I would practice Lexio for a year. <clears throat> Because it, it is not, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discipline, and um, it does take kind of getting inside of you. Um, I would start with five minutes a day. Uh, you can do one step a day. You can do fi- five steps over the course of a week, one passage over the course of a week. Five minutes a day, I should be able to ask that of any Christian, I, I believe. Um, don't worry about doing more. Because you'll do more when you see the fruit. When you see some fruit after, say, two weeks of doing it five week, five minutes a day, if you see the fruit, add 10 minutes. So do it 10 minutes a day. When you see fruit after 10 minutes, do it 15 minutes a day. Um, you know, so let the fruit guide you. If you're p- picking great raspberries, you're going to go back to the raspberry farm. Um, so, but do some, whatever you do, you have to put it in time. It must be practical, and you must be committed. You, mu- you can't get fit if you exercise once a month. You can't get thin if you, you, know, fat, if you diet you know, once, a, once a quarter. You have to be consistent. So, Lexio, you have to be consistent. So pick a number of time that you can stick to and do it for at least two weeks, and then let yourself incrementally uh, you know, kind of increase. That's the key thing is to be, to be consistent about it. <clears throat> and then if you're doing that and you... I, I think the Holy Spirit will guide you through your communities as to wh- what next steps, but you can always reach out to me through that little contact us section on my website and 
I, I may have ideas for to, to connect you to groups and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, because you're so humble, you failed to mention pick up the book. I would yeah. really encourage people to pick up the book. I'll do that for you yeah, yeah, because you. it's not only uh, gives great description of how to practice Lexia within these five steps, but it's just uh, it's really a masterpiece in its imagery that brings us to this new and deeper union with Christ. Yeah, and we didn't say it like, I mean, my first training before I was a writer, I was a photographer. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I, I do love photography and the photography is... is I don't really mention it, but I'm I'm the one who took the photographs too. So oh, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, Neil, brother, thanks so much for spending this time with us. It's been great to get your insight on the practice of Lexio, your journey with Christ through it, through your discernment with the monastic communities, and, and receiving that gift from that time that you're now giving to the whole of uh, the people of God. So thank you for sharing with us today. Loved being here. Thanks for having me. Blessings. Mm-hmm.